one lesson that people could take would be stay small. I could have continued to pair my costs there and make a very nice living and practice a very good level of veterinary medicine. You know, I have no regrets. Building the mega hospital was ego-driven. Yeah. Still was something I'm very proud of. I look back and say, hmm, that was a lot of energy that your ego used to build that monolith. From Hamster Wheel Publishing, this is Blunt Dissection. I'm... Dave Nichol. On today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Steve Noonan. Steve graduated from the Ontario Veterinary College in 1983, and at the tender age of 27, he owned three veterinary hospitals. Though business grew fast, life got tough, and with interest rates exceeding 20% per annum, Steve very quickly learned how little he knew about business. Thus began an almost 30-year practice management learning odyssey, which culminated in the formation of a 12-hospital partnership and directorship of an ultra-modern 15,000-foot-square hospital. He also started the Metro Halifax Emergency Hospital, one of the first emergency clinics in Canada. More recently, Steve has explored new areas and has dramatically diversified his attention, which is now split between part-time clinical work, which he still loves, coaching and mentoring his younger peers, and building an entirely new venture, Lachlan Botanical a herb farm and wellness retreat near Toronto, serving up remedies, teas, flowers, yoga, mindfulness classes, and some of the best photos on Instagram. Now, speaking of wellness, I just wanted to drop a quick word from today's show sponsor, which is the Verex Thrive community. If you're a young vet looking to find your feet in veterinary medicine, grow your confidence, avoid burnout, and beat your inner imposter, then check out Verex Thrive. As a community member, you'll receive success skills training modules, access to experienced mentors and incredible toolkits to help you thrive in your career. Access to this community is available for just $25 a month. And if you use the promo code podcast, you will receive a further 10% discount. Head over to VEDEX Thrive to take advantage of this offer and take back control of your career. Now back to the show. Steve has felt both the highs and lows that a life in practice can offer, and he bears the scars on the outside and within. But from the moment I met him, one thing struck me more than anything else. Steve has a heart the size of a house and he wants to do good. His calm and steady demeanor are reflective of his thoughtful inner self. And if you're looking for someone who has worked hard to become the best version of themselves or someone to pick you up when you're feeling down or help you find a path when you're lost, then you do a lot worse than have this guy on speed dial. Today's episode was a long time in the making, and I loved every second of creating it. I hope you enjoy it too. So without further ado, I offer you this, my conversation with friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Steve Noonan. So welcome to another episode of Blunt Dissection. Today, for the first time ever, actually, I am in the wonderful country of Canada, and it is very, very cold it was minus 15, maybe minus 20 degrees Celsius a couple of days ago. Um, I'm just outside of the city of Toronto. I've been wandering around in the idyllic Ontario countryside, making snow angels and uh, tramping around the grounds of today's guest on what is a, a wonderfully soothing, calming a uh, country adventure for me uh, around the estates of Lachlan Botanicals, sitting in the front room of the lovely warm farmhouse, 
surrounded, literally surrounded by animals. There are three dogs, two cats. We're in danger of, we're not in danger of being overrun, are we? We've, we've no. been completely overrun. And it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Steve Noonan to the show. Take a look at my foot. Like, is that not the unclassiest combination you've ever seen? i got to describe this. Steve is wearing what can only be described as a somewhat tragic combination of socks and Jesus sandals, Birkenstocks. Um, that is a sure sign of, you know, I was going to say middle age, but but certainly yeah. I think probably advanced. I'm, I'm advanced. <laughs> Seniority, shall we call Super it? Super comfortable. Never, I would never wear this combination in public ever, ever. Um, however, I made a mistake one day. I had on my scrubs. The Birkenstocks are my uh, my house slippers. I rushed to work. I looked down at my feet, and it was like, holy crap. <laughs> Holy crap, I'm wearing socks and Birkenstocks in public, and I've started my shift. But that was a tragic, tragic error. That is, I do normally wear trainers or whatever. Is the It's almost the footwear equivalent of a mullet. <laughs> Except that it, it's, nev- it's, you know, it's, it's never in fashion. It, yeah, it's never no. out of fashion. I think it it's, might it's, be worse than a mullet. Let's call it timeless. That is pure. That's pure. That's you know. Yeah. That's a sign of. That's just comfort, isn't it? That's just yeah. That's that, that is that is. <laughs> function yeah. has worn yeah. out. Function has absolutely yeah. savagely defeated form. In that it's moment true. of footwear, it's true. <laughs> so I've been threatening to get you on the show for a long while, but our paths have not crossed. So it's absolutely fabulous to get the opportunity to come here and visit with you in your your wonderful home our bellies are full of an amazing chili you've just made we're we're fed we're watered and we're ready to have a great conversation i think so welcome to blunt dissection thank you thank you dave Uh, it's always fun to spend time with you and uh, the listeners should know that you tracked your first wild turkey in (laughs) southwestern ontario today listeners it is true Dr. Nickel was stalking a large handful of wild turkeys out in our field. And what a pleasure. I was hoping we'd find some, and indeed we did. And I must also point out that we didn't we didn't put them in the chili. We were literally just trying to see them. It's no, going to ruin my vegan street cred. <laughs> they certainly saw us and were well on their way, but it was fun to see them. It was great. They're much bigger than I was expecting. Yeah. I mean, I was I'm thinking back to the wild bush turkeys in Australia, and they were. I used to visit Noosa, a, little, a delightful little place up on the Sunshine Coast, north of Brisbane. And there's just wild bush turkeys tramping around all over the place, which is lovely. Your wild bush turkeys are not like those at all. Like these things look like ostriches from a distance. Like Ugly a, ostriches. They look like a motorcycle gang. Sometimes there's fifty or seventy-five of them. Oh yeah, and the uh, number of tracks in the snow. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. That's one of the things I like to do on the weekends when it's snowing. They can't hear you, and I put on s- snowshoes. And I, all I want to do is see how close I can get and observe them. 
It's just really fun. It's what's, what's the closest that, you ever got? Because we we oh, approached like we were upwind of them, wearing like welly boots and like I was wearing noisy overgarments. Uh, so we, we were pr- and loud clothing. So like there were pretty much no chance of getting anywhere near them. I've got within twenty five meters. They have sentinel birds, and the minute they see anything different, they sound off the alarm and. Uh, and then they all go running. They're all scared. And, and they look really funny when they run. They do. They're a bit like dinosaurs, actually. Yeah, pretty much so. That. so. Well, it's great to be here on your farm. I think that's probably quite a nice place to start because, Steve, you have uh, had an interesting, varied, and multi-directional career. But let's maybe start close to home. And I'm curious, I'm always just being curious, you know, you live in this uh, very lovely patch of planet Earth. How do you wind up here? How do you wind up with a farm? Tell us a bit more about the background to Dr. Steve Noonan. I'm from southwestern Ontario. So when I graduated from veterinary school, oh, listeners, I married my sweetheart, who's a classmate from veterinary school. And uh, I'm really, really fortunate in that. And uh, she's from Toronto, and I am from London, Ontario. And we went to the East Coast upon graduation. And uh, Diane, my wife, is very much interested in horses. And we brought a horse with us. And within a couple of years of graduation, we owned a a boarding stable and we we started acquiring horses. We raised our family, uh, had a number of veterinary clinics out there, sold our farm, and came back to southwestern Ontario after 25 years of practice in Atlantic Canada. So we needed another farm because we still had horses. And we moved here. And uh, as you know, Dave, there's a barn full of horses. Our family personally is down to four horses now. But it is really cool to live on a horse farm because we have fields and we have lovely horses and uh, we have pastures and forests and ponds. And... uh, you know, I'm just so grateful. Life has been really good. That's how we got here. So taking it back into, I was interested how people find their way into veterinary medicine. Uh, and, you know, one of the aims of the podcast is always to try and just shine a light on the various journeys, pathways through medicine and explore. We say it's like the anatomy of veterinary success, but actually it's the story of, vet, you know, it's the story of the veterinarian's journey and all of the the bumps, the you know, the, the highs, the lows, and things that go along with that. So, what was your route into veterinary medicine? And we have been friends for a number of years. I think you've got a really fascinating story as to you know you had an unusual route, like after college as well. So, like, how did you wind up in veterinary medicine in the first place? Were you one of these crazy people who just like knew immediately, or were an animal hoarder that your parents just kicked you in vet school <laughs> with? Or how did that pan out? Well, we were talking about this earlier. I'm one of these people that uh, have a very, very good memory for my very early childhood. And uh, I always was interested in animals. Red Rose Tea used to give little animal stickers in the boxes of tea. And you'd have a little journal or a little album to put these stickers in. I remember getting making my mother buy tea till it was coming out of our ears so I could fill this. 
and it's the uh, early equivalent of panini football yeah, stickers, right? And it was the same thing with dinosaurs. So as a six-year-old kid, I knew the names of all the dinosaurs, and I knew all the names of like fairly exotic animals from the jungle and so on. And I was always interested in that. We did have cats. We did have dogs. But when high school came, I'm very fortunate that I have like sort of like Sheldon Cooper. I think I have an eidetic memory. Short term, it's really great. So I was able to get very high marks in high school easily. And then I was fortunate to be able to do the same thing after one year of my bachelor's program. Diane was the same. So we both got in after one year. But in my mind, it was really clear I would either be a veterinarian or a physician because I thought medicine was fascinating. Yeah. I thought science was fascinating. Yeah. I thought surgery was fascinating. Did you get that from, like, what do your parents do? I mean, did you derive that from from some sort of parental sort of guy? I know for me, like, my father lectured medical students, so that pushed me in a certain direction. Was there an influence there? My parents were blue-collar workers. I think the one thing that did also affect me, though, is my father's parents did have a farm in rural Nova Scotia. That was part of that connection. Yeah. So when I would visit... I just I love nothing better than gathering eggs with my grandmother yeah. and that sort of thing and hanging with the chickens all afternoon. It just <laughs> you know, still a, chase the turkeys. Yeah, like <laughs> I I totally remember as a six year old just hanging with my grandmother's chickens, loving it. That's me. I, you tell the readers what's on my or the listeners what's on my lap. You have a quite delightful tortoiseshell pussycat on your lap just now we are literally draped in animals yeah. here so yeah so diane and i are big time animal lovers and that's what drew me to the field the other piece and all successful clinicians know this is you need to love people and i do i really love being with people and helping people and being in service of people so i always thought that that aspect of being a vet would be pretty cool and it has been where did where did that one? Now, I'm going to weave in a little bit of my backstory here because it, I'm embarrassed. This is my first time to visit Canada, and I never envisaged going to a warmer country like Australia as I did. But I always I watched shows like Due South. Remember this shit? Like I like what that. a great show! What a great show! I, I wanted to have Diefenbacher. Basically, that dog yeah. was awesome. I watched shows like what was another one? Michael J. Fox was in Doc Hollywood. And the other one that was filmed up here, but it was supposed to be set in Alaska. What was that called? It was a picture of northern 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 exposures. Yeah, right. And so all of those shows had a very strong influence on my sense of wanting to be a part of a community. And something you said there really resonated with me. And I actually think it's the reason I've had a I've enjoyed my career for as long as I have. It was a sense of wanting to be a part of community, and inherent in that was contribution to a community where did the love of people come for you because i think a lot of vets struggle with that you know we're, we're great at looking after animals but we're not always great at connecting with human beings so you know that's maybe one thing that i start to see as a red thread between people who are really top performing practitioners they've got that love of people in my observation where did yours come from that's a good question dave i don't know that i've been asked that before but i have thought about it and I, I think the answer is twofold. The first one is when you help others, it just feels good. Yeah. You know, that sounds quite biblical, but I mean, it's, it's just a fact. Yeah. You know, as you know, I've studied a lot of psychology 
and uh, there is a very, very small proportion of psychopaths and sociopaths out there. But short of them, everyone else, when they do something for another person, they feel good. So that's a driver, I think, for all people. And then if I was really honest, which I am being, I know that I'll be really nice to people because I want them to like me. And what happens is when you are nice to people, they do like you. And so it's totally a win-win situation. Right. So you can actually fake it till you make it. If you're scared of people, which I was for a while as a young clinician, you fake it and you fake it to be really, really nice. And then the next thing you know, your clients adore you and then you don't have to fake it anymore. How do you go about doing that? That's a really interesting concept. So I see, and I wonder what you see out there because you still work in private practice. Yeah. So maybe let's start with that question. What do you see? And we'll probably intrude, you know, one section fashion bounce yeah. around like a ping pong ball over your Sorry. life. They're basically tread all over your life in a fairly random fashion. But it's interesting just to ask about what you're observing with the next generation of doctors coming through. Because, you know, that fake it till you make it thing, it almost looks like that's perhaps, I don't see that happening very much. Like, is that something that is a Steve Noonan thing? Or is that something we can all learn from? Like, maybe the right question here is, what did you do? Did you have a process? Like, how did you feel in your head? And did you have a process by which that you you were able to step up and, and you know, put on your hero's cape and mask and just almost bluff your yeah, way yeah. through the early years? Well, when I was a, a young clinician, so don't forget, uh, because of the process and our good fortune of getting into veterinary school early, I was a clinician at the age of 24, as was Diane. And, uh, you know, I think I've always been a nice chap, but it is very easy to be perceived as a young 24-year-old man looking after the beloved pet of a 60-year-old woman or man as a cocky young chap. That's possible, right? Right. Don't know whether I was or wasn't, but my boss at the time decided I needed the Dale Carnegie course, which helps you improve your interactions with people. I felt I was pretty good at it. However, I wasn't offended. And both Diane and I, the Dale Carnegie course cost a fortune. But my boss paid for it for both of us. And I learned... Were you both working in the same practice? He had seven practices. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's why we went out east, because we knew that we both could get jobs in the same city. Got it. Because we were in love, and otherwise we are going to be about five hours apart. Right. So what I learned from the Dale Carnegie course is there are a bunch of very, very quote-unquote schlocky, stereotypical concepts that we hear that we may not really give much credence to, but things like smile. Like if you can learn to genuinely smile at people, we have mirror neurons and they'll smile back. Use the word thank you. Genuinely try to get people to like you. So this Dale Carnegie course, I really did quite like it. And this Dale Carnegie course was a four-hour course every week for 26 weeks. This was not an insignificant and then you had homework, and then you learned to do public speaking in front of people. 
That's a huge investment. So not only did I participate, but then I ended up being a TA, a teaching assistant, ah, okay. for when my wife took it, and then one of my best mates took it. So I was Im- immersed in Dale Carnegie for a year and a half, and I was extremely fortunate because Dale Carnegie is filled with people who are trying to be better. This is not a Dale Carnegie commercial, by the way, but I just I have to explain it because Dale Carnegie has that book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. There's like 100 million copies. Yeah. And in 40 languages. So, And uh, I learned how to say I'm sorry. I learned so many important things. And the reason I think it was easy to learn is because everybody knows it's true. So I still was a fearful young clinician, but I started using these Dale Carnegie principles, crying like hell to get people to like me. And as a young clinician, you don't want to get sued. You don't want to make a mistake. So you want people to know and think that you've done the very, very best you possibly can for them, and you went over and above, and you care like crazy. Now, all of that is true, but you have to get them to believe that. And Dave, I guess you know what happened. I was wildly successful with it. And so it's not too long where then everybody's asking to see you. All the clients are saying, can I see that young doctor? And it's because I did what I was taught. What were the most important lessons? Can you recall... You know, what were the most impactful things? You know, I'm a, I'm a yeah. massive fan of 80-20, so. Yeah, um, I, and I, I touched on most of them. Okay, smile. Smile. A firm, sincere handshake when appropriate. Yeah. Eye contact. Yeah. Say sorry and mean it when you mean it. Yeah. Okay, here's a big one. Genuinely try to find something you like about every single person you meet. And it literally can be, that's a cool tattoo. Yeah. Remember we spoke about when we were on the trail of the turkeys? Just yesterday, I had a client, a heavily accented gentleman from Romania. Nice gentleman. And I just took a moment to learn where he was from and how to spell his name. And I used his name in my sentences. And the guy seemed incredibly pleased with what I did. And really, all I was doing was a, an ear infection, of course. <laughs> but I know that I pleased him. And I think I told you I went out and spoke to his father, who spoke no English. And he was just tickled pink that I spoke to his 90-year-old father. And how much energy did that take me? Nothing. So focusing on the, the people started yeah. you with early success. Now, I mean, I suppose that's quite quite a good place to jump back onto your timeline. So you're still, how, how far out of college are you at this point in time? Six to 24 months okay. is what we're talking about. And and then I bought my first clinic. Right. Okay. So that's a big jump. And this is where I think, you know, you're unusual in many ways. And I mean that in a, in a good way. <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah. You're different. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. someone serves you food and you taste it. It's like, yes, that's different. I don't mean it like that. I mean that in a... You're exceptional is probably a a better word to use. And this is one of the first things that when I heard your story, I was like, say, what? Because, you know, it took me, I I probably waited too long and fell into a different trap early in my career of finding good people, but not really learning from them, just relying on them. And so I became mentally lazy and I had to force myself. You went the absolute opposite way and just said, screw it. I'm I'm jumping in with both feet early doors. So... 
what drove that decision? Like, how, how, like what, what was it? Was there a sequence of events or was there always a plan when you left well, college to do that? Well, my boss had seven clinics in a greater metropolitan area in, in Halifax. And uh, I aspired to be like him. He was a good boss. He was a good guy. You know, just like all of us, he had his quirks and his idiosyncrasies. But he was an absolute pioneer. You know, we're talking to a veterinary audience here. So as we all know, there are many ways that we can be paid when we work. We can work on salary. We can be a locum. We can work on production. And remember, guys, we're talking about 1983. Yeah. So my boss paid production. That's one of the reasons I, Diane and I moved out there. And what happened for us is Diane and I, so we're two people, right? So we should be earning the equivalent of two salaries. So if one veterinary salary is X and two veterinary salaries are 2X, well, Diane and I were pulling down 5X. So it was massive. It was a yeah. mass. So we were living in this tiny little apartment under one of the clinics, spending zero money. Pretty soon, I had my student loans paid off in a couple of months. What was a student loan back then? I feel like this might fifteen be grand, cry. which is nothing, but yeah. still, they were paid paid off in no time. So, so what we were able to do is, I bought the first clinic from my boss. Yeah, probably paid a little too much, yeah. but just the same, did very well with that. And then I used that clinic. Was your boss in a situation where he was retiring or? No, he just passed away. He just passed away. He worked till he was 80 as a part-time vet. Oh. But his son, who is maybe five years younger than me, was his manager. Yeah. And he and I did a number of things together, including starting a, an emergency clinic. Yeah. But anyway, my first clinic, I used that to leverage a mortgage on my first horse farm. Okay. And then I used my first horse farm to leverage a loan for my second and third clinic. So by the time Diane and I were 27, we had three clinics and a horse farm. Right. And a lot of debt. And um, one of the reasons I like to speak about management is because I made every management mistake one could ever make and invented many that you've never heard of. Because when you have three clinics and you're a young kid like I was with no one to teach you. Yeah. My only mentor was my boss who I bought from, and he was good, but that was it. My family had no business experience. My wife's family are business people, but they were living in Toronto. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting life. It was good. What were, thinking back then, were there any any of the mistakes you made that were notable in that they were useful learning lessons so stumbles rather than falls that actually turned out to be really useful powerful lessons for you at the start of your career what happened that didn't work but later turned out to be actually quite a blessing and what things were just like were there any just disasters that occurred the first um my second clinic was a feeder clinic to my main hospital and the road between them improved so that they're really, they were too close together. Yeah. And I eventually merged those two into my final big flagship hospital. Yeah. So, I mean, the lesson there simply is probably look at traffic flows. Mm. I certainly made money at both clinics, but it was really funny to be late from one clinic to another. And you arrive there, 
you arrive at Clinic B and one of your clients from Clinic A is waiting for you. Right. (laughs) And my third clinic, I bought it. It was in a poor location. It just was in a poor location. It was a different neighborhood. It was a lower income neighborhood. I really shouldn't have done it. And I either broke even or lost money there and I sold it. Yeah. So for sure, those are my two lessons. But I'm really proud to say when I left Atlantic Canada, the clinic that we had was one of the nicest clinics in the country. We spent uh, two years planning it and we visited some of the biggest facilities in Canada and the U.S. We ended up with uh, this clinic was 15,000 square feet, 50 dog runs, 5-0, positive pressure surgery suite, negative pressure dental suite laparoscopy, ultrasound, six exam rooms, doggy daycare, underwater treadmill, dog swimming pool. How many years after buying your first two clinics was this? And, and what year are we in just now? Like, what, how old So are you we are this? now in 2005. So that would be 22 years out. All right. So there's a gulf and gap between the... Yeah acquisition and then getting to that point yeah lots of cool things happened in between and it it was interesting dave because i sold that one poor clinic i merged the two into about a 3500 square foot facility yeah and we outgrew it but that would be one lesson that people could take would be stay small I could have continued to pair my costs there and make a very nice living and practice a very good level of veterinary medicine. Like, you know, I have no regrets. Building the mega hospital was ego-driven. Yeah. Still was something I'm very proud of. I look back and say, hmm, that was a lot of energy. That was a lot of energy that your ego used to build that monolith. Would I do it again? Maybe not. But I'm still very proud of what we built. What makes you say you wouldn't do it again? Well, it's just energy. I mean, we all have so much energy, and I really, really used a lot. Yeah. Which I guess brings, since we're on blunt dissection and we ricochet all all over the place, (laughs) what happened to me, dear listeners, is um, I burned out. I burned out, and it was probably that big hospital was the final straw. What was the sequence leading up to that? So you've had a like success, you know, inverted yeah. commas, what, what yeah. certainly outwardly appears to be success. You've gotten into vet school very early, earlier than most. You graduated at 24. You have your own, your own hospital. By the time, you know, you and Diane are 27, you're running three hospitals in the, in the horse yard. And now you're, you know, you're further on in your career and you're starting to, to build So I'm going to come back to some of the other maybe growth lessons you learned along the way. Let's focus on that because burnout does stalk a lot of us. And I don't don't really want blunt section to be all about burnout. But I think this is a a pivotal part of your story. And I'm curious, like when you led up to it, was there a sequence of things that you can reflect back on now? Like first question is, talk us through like that phase of your yeah, career no, uh, and then reflecting back on it was there a sequence of things that you would you would recognize now that you couldn't recognize then what was going on well building that hospital anybody who's built a big hospital knows how stressful it can be and 
I've had some skills being my own contractor many times. So I, I do have the ability to understand exactly how the plumber puts in things, what the electrician does. So all my little clinics and merging, and I haven't told you that some of these clinics, we would then do expansions on them and so on. Yeah. So I understood contracting fairly well, much better than the average, but I'm not an expert. I think I thought I was more of an expert than I was. And um, I had a fellow who worked with me, a real estate uh, developer, older gentleman, Joe, and Joe and I felt we could be the general contractor for this massive hospital. Now, we priced out the building of this hospital, and uh, if we were getting uh, an independent uh, contracting company to build the hospital, it was going to be X dollars, and Joe and I determined that we could build it for X minus a million if we did it. Right. Okay. You know, the idea of saving a million dollars is kind of kind of enticing. It's quite a nice thought, right. Yeah. But it damn near killed me. Okay. There was a couple of times I I can give you countless examples. You know, you've you're waiting for something to show up and it doesn't show up, it gets lost. You have a tradesman walk off the site because someone else hasn't shown up. You have the uh, the electric company not connect your power when they said they would. It's just thing after thing after thing. I had no idea. So I built that hospital and uh what year is this? Yours is two thousand five. Two thousand and five. Okay. And then Diane and I, we did have this desire to return home to Ontario. Because we we're getting close to fifty years old. And it's like our parents are getting older. Yeah. If we don't do this, we will never do it. Yeah. These big horse farms like the one I live on now and the one I have in Nova Scotia, you just don't sell them like a house. Yeah. Like, and uh, somebody offered to buy our, our farm in Nova Scotia. So is this at the same time as you're building After. the Taj Mahal? After. Okay. So the Taj Mahal has been built and going for a couple of years. Okay. So have you burned out at this point or not? No, but I think I'm getting close. Got it. Okay. And then... We had an opportunity to, to sell the farm in Nova Scotia. Yeah. So we sold it and had a conditional offer on this property here. And without going into great detail, it was just an incredibly bone-crushing experience for me. What do you well, mean by that? Well, what I mean is my wife and my daughters – and two horse trailers and two containers and 14 horses are on their way to Ontario. And the guy who's supposed to put the cash in my bank account and close on the my Nova Scotia farm still is stringing me along at 12 minutes to midnight. Right. It was just awful. It was yeah. just an awful experience back and forth and back and forth and you'd have a deal and the deal would break the property i live in now we lost it once yeah then someone else made an offer on it which failed and then, so we then we had a conditional offer back on us and it was a conditional offer higher or lower than your no first we one? no screw him. we ended up we ended up getting it the second time for less right right but that experience of almost losing this property you can see how lovely this one is yeah yeah Oh, just as a sidebar, this property, Diane boarded a horse here 
in her pre-vet year. And so she actually knew what this property was uh, when we put an offer in on it. Right. So a combination of 25 years of practice trying to please everyone, building the mega hospital, and then- And the that dip- just emptied and, your and tanks and to do you that. Know, it did. And then the final thing, Dave, you know this about me. I'm a big fellow. I started getting herniated discs. I started getting excruciating pain. That was for a couple of years worth. Yeah. And don't feel sad for me, listeners, because it got better and I went on to do triathlons. But the combination of all this anxiety and pain, like I just was useless for about a year and a half here in Ontario. I just did a tiny bit of locum work and so on. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the price I paid. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough being in pain, which leads to, to depression and just feeling sorry for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Do we talk enough about, you know, you and I have spoken about depression before. It seems to me, you know, it's a common thing that happens to people. Yeah. Super common. I sometimes, and I'll be the first to admit this, it's not that I have a hard time getting my head around it. It's just not something that has afflicted me. Yeah. And I say that carefully because I'm sure there's a point in any person's life where it could and it's not that I struggle with empathy on it but it's it's almost a struggle to have a you know a shape for it in my head or a place for it to fit there's obviously there's days where i think oh you know this is not a good day or you know you're you're going through tough challenges in life things like that but i never feel i never feel what i hear others describing depression as how did it manifest for you if you're comfortable to talk about that oh sure i am sure i am I guess first thing I'll say is uh, my clinical diagnosis is super well contained. Uh, I haven't had any problems for a couple of years, but my clinical diagnosis is a bipolar disorder type 2, which is the mild type. Yep. And if I think about myself and my life, so bipolar is either you're manic or you're depressed, and manic is when you're quite uh, you know, going like crazy. And I think if I look back, probably part, I'm a fairly hyper guy. Those people say, who, who know me will say, oh, yeah, he's quite a character. And I think maybe I might have had, always had the tendency towards it. And basically, the manic part of my character was going, and I was constantly running from everything else. Yeah. But eventually, what happened for me is 50 years of life and the, the things we talked about, things come up and, and you crash. Yeah, And so when you get depressed, everybody will describe it differently, but you, you have absolutely no energy. You have absolutely no energy. You may kind of think life isn't worth living. You may think about suicide. Like you may just want to stay in bed and sleep. You know, the point is you're bloody useless. And then, then you hate yourself for it. You're very frustrated with yourself for this lack of energy. So there's a self-loathing that goes with it. So you're layering on, you're into yeah. this loop, and now you've got an added layer of yeah. meaning. I hate yeah. myself on top of that. So I didn't get a diagnosis for that. I, yeah. I, I went to a number of different counselors, therapists, and so on. And you certainly can pay to go to a psychiatrist here in Canada with our universal health care. But if you want to see a psychiatrist, you have to wait. And, and, you know, I was really fortunate. My doctor just said, you're seeing, a, you're seeing a psychiatrist. 
And uh, it was telemedicine. I never met the woman. Yeah. She talked to me and she goes, you're bipolar type two. Like she just nailed it very, very quickly. Prescribed some medication as lithium. Yeah. And uh, I'm on a pretty low dose of it. I did have a few more episodes. Talked to her again. Increased the uh, the morning dose. I haven't had any anything for two years. I don't get manic anymore. Uh, if anything, I'll get depressed. Yeah. Now, I know that you want me to talk about this, Dave, and I really want to talk about this. The biggest thing for me, typical veterinarians. You know, the, us veterinarians were jacks of all trades, right? Yeah. We can do anything. We can fix anything. And it's like, okay, well, if I'm going to be bipolar. By God, I'm going to be the best damn bipolar there ever was by learning everything there was about it. And for me, that journey involved learning about mindfulness, learning about the disease, and then what can I do to fight it? Learning about mindfulness, becoming a personal coach, because as a coach, you know, how much more empathetic can I possibly be to people that are depressed? Because a lot of vets are. I took a number of online psychology courses. Berkeley has some great stuff studied the science of happiness. And and this is how you and I met, Dave. So then I went out on the speaking circuit and I spoke about 20 times at different vet schools, all about the science of happiness, how to prevent or work on your own depression, how to do it better. Yeah. So that, that piece has been my journey on that. So that's, that brings us to a sort of intersection point where our paths crossed for the first time. And my you know, immediately meeting you, I I was I felt here somebody that has a a very big heart, very big love of the profession, and wanted to help other people. And you know, and I, I you know, and actually one of the things I was I was kind of a little. I remember very vividly a dinner that we sat around at, and we'd gone out, and I think we'd all been doing our speaking. We're sat in the National Harbour, and there's you, myself, and there's three other people around the table. And I remember thinking at that moment, it's kind of, I always meet somebody. That was the reason I, I kept going back and speaking. You know, financially, it didn't make any sense to do that. But in terms of networking, and not just networking, in terms of the quality of people that I was meeting, the interesting people and the value that that I was deriving from those friendships. And, and that makes it sound like a very take, take, take. So I think it's not that at all. It's just in terms of the perspective shifts, the expansion of one's mind. I think the changing of a mindset probably is a good way to describe it. So you were one of those people that sort of I was very pleased to meet. And then the content you were talking about, and I think this is a, a great place to segue into. Okay, so you you are you've found your struggles. You know, named your demon. We are we are always talking about Lord of the Rings and the Balrog. Yeah. And so you, you went to some of your presentations, and really you were the first person in veterinary medicine that I encountered that was that was really starting to talk about a lot of the positive psychology factors that we can all use in the profession yeah. to help ourselves out. So, you know, this is not a, a tale of woe and, and doom and gloom because you're extremely successful. So let's now talk about how, like, how do you then, you know, so you've sought help, you have a prescription, but you do a lot more things than that to manage your positivity and be able to function in a way that allows you to give to others. What's your sort of routine there? Well, the mindfulness piece and 
you and I had a great chance to meditate today in our pine forest, even though it was like 130 below. <laughs> it was it was it was awesome, wasn't it? I actually go I go frozen in position. I'm yeah, just out yeah. there for half the time. No, I'm kidding. But meditation. We're sitting in front of my fire right now. That's one of my things every morning. I have a gratitude journal for sure, and I, I journal every morning. My brother-in-law, now here's a tale of woe very quickly, but it, there's a, an important piece to this. My brother-in-law, who I gratitude journal with every day, he's a triathlete. He was doing a weight workout. He felt dizzy, collapsed. It was diagnosed with an aortic aneurysm. So they had to open his chest up and completely reconstruct his aortic arch and put in a, a cow valve. Now, apparently, as soon as your chest is cracked open, part of your rehab therapy is working with a psychologist. Did you know that? I did not. I did not know that. Because you literally do get a broken heart when your chest is cracked open. And so he was really depressed after this, but they worked through that. And then his wife passed away in an accident falling downstairs. Oh, boy. Before he recovered. Oh, man. And this guy, I'm telling you this because this guy, my brother-in-law, he just, and then now, this is all within a year and a half, a major intestinal accident has had to have his intestines removed and a colostomy, okay? This guy gives me the best gratitude. There's a, a light everywhere, people. I'm not trying to bring you down. This guy gives me the best gratitude notes every morning. So I sit in front of my fire, I have coffee, I read his gratitude notes, and we share them back and forth every day, what we're grateful for. And then I do my own journaling, and then I send back to him. So that's that's one of my biggest things. I do this gratitude with coffee and a fire and my brother-in-law every morning. How long does it take to do that? And what sort of things would you be journaling? I'm very simple. I take 10 things that I'm grateful for right now that I think about. And sometimes there'll be repeats. Like I did it this morning before I saw you at the airport. And one of the things I'm grateful for is that Dave's coming to visit. I've just um, eaten you out of house and uh, home with uh, beautiful um, chili. <laughs> uh, I'm grateful for this cup of coffee. Sometimes I'm grateful for my pajamas. Sometimes I'm grateful for the fact that we saved that dog with ITP yesterday. So it's, it's quite variable, but there'll be 10 things and they're legit and I try to make them heartfelt. Heartfelt is a big thing, uh, people, with gratitude. And the way you do that is you can close your eyes and breathe really deep. And that good feeling you get in your chest, like right in your heart as air comes in, try to think that way with that feeling on everything for which you're grateful. I mean, I'm grateful for shelter when it's 30 below. It's brilliant. Here in North America, we are so spoiled everything to be grateful for. I'm curious about, you know, some of the things then, you know, the, the quality of the gratitude notes you get back from your brother-in-law, what sort of things, because that's, uh, you know, there's some crushing blows in there oh. that he has oh. endured. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting now that uh, this guy, he has two healthy adult children who adore him, for one thing. He's found a new lady friend who adores him, and the children adore her, and this all. And so now he's got this woman who's supported him fully, in spite of taking him through the the intestinal bit, the whole thing. Like so, 
he's just he's grateful for her friendship. He's grateful for the wonderful doctors he has. He's got um, like one of the most gorgeous golden retrievers you'll ever see. That's won a bunch of championships already called Teddy. Yeah. And Teddy is just like tinderball of energy. So almost every day there's something that he's grateful for about Teddy. And uh, yeah, very refreshing to read this. So mindfulness, journaling. Music. Um, music. You heard all my guitars and ukuleles. People, I don't sing well, but I will carry a tune. But I do know a lot of songs, and, and I do know a lot of chords. So I'm the guy that can go to a house party and just have some fun. So I really, really like my music. And uh, when I'm by myself playing and singing my little heart out, I could be at Carnegie Hall in my head. I'm just having a great time. Great time. R love, love music. Have you found your equilibrium now? The question it popped in my head there was actually one of our previous guests on Blunt Dissection, and it really became, I guess, I guess for a lot of doctors, we get wrapped up in this sense of our identity. We almost don't have our own sense of self beyond that of being a veterinarian for a lot of doctors. And I... I've always always yeah. a vet, but I never identified myself no. necessarily. That's as that. never been a problem for me, right? Like I am the servant of Diane. Yeah, you know the devotee of Diane. Yeah, I am the uh, father of Amy and Katrina. I am a, a lord of Lachlan Farm. I'm a musician. I'm a veterinarian. I'm a son. I'm a brother. Like all those things for sure. Right. I've never been hung up on that. Okay. So let's take it away from, from veterinary medicine, because then your career, so you've, you yeah. start out young vet, you get your own hospitals, you build a Taj Mahal, you move back, yeah. you know, you've gone hard, endured some challenges, um, learned a lot about yourself along the way, built coping strategies and sought support. You're still in the game, very much. Yeah. And now, having you know, maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago, you start to tell me about this crazy idea that you guys are having to, and that's my yeah. words, not your words, that you're going to start a botanicals farm. Yeah. And at first I thought, oh, Steve's lost it and he's going to start growing weed all over Canada, which actually sounds like that's not illegal here well, in Canada. We, we have enough adults on this property <laughs> that at four plants each, we could do quite well. <laughs> So I haven't said no to that. You haven't said no, and there's, there's always an option. And we, we must point out that marijuana use is legal in Canada it now, is. right? Is that, is that the case? I, I noticed that. Yes, it is. Um, on the way in through customs. So let's talk about where did the idea to start, because it's a very left field jump. You're running a yeah. horse, you know, you've got equestrian center livery, and you have worked within the profession, and now you're like, a gardener on speed like you're just taking this to another degree and and where i might go out and buy a little box of basil and rosemary and you know let them rot in the fridge and like use three leaves from them for one meal you have basically you know have replanted the whole of the local countryside with beautiful <laughs> herbs uh, and are doing something in a more not industrial scale but certainly a larger scale so talk me through like how did that come about well that came about completely 
as Diane's idea. Right. Okay. So listeners, we have a hundred acre farm. We have typical Ontario hundred acre farm, 2000 feet by 2000 feet. And, uh, we have horses and we have about, about 40 acres of forest. And we've got about 40 acres of hay fields. So the farm across the road started a lavender plantation as a tourist venue. And where we are is only 45 minutes from Toronto. So, And there's, uh, what, 10 million people living in yeah, the Toronto area? 10 million people in Toronto. Area. So they started the lavender plantation seven years ago. And uh, now they have... 65,000 visitors and they charge admission and the mission's quite steep. So they sell ice cream and people walk around and look at the lavender fields. And this is directly across the road from us. And uh, so what's happening is all these people are pouring in and it's a multi, multi, multi million dollar business. So Diane said, I want some of that. <laughs> and we've planted something quite different to lavender. Yes, we do have lavender, but we have 76 different species. We've got like 20,000 plants. And I'm biased, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, the plants are planted in rows growing out of fabric, and most of the rows are 125 to 150 meters long with seven feet of grass in between. And you can go up and down these rows through this rolling hill, and it's pretty. It's pretty. And you can snip your own flowers. So... Nothing pleases me. I, I said I've, I've seen days where we'll have ladies from the age of three to 75 all just grinning from ear to ear holding their bouquet of flowers that they've cut for themselves. And I got lots of cooking herbs and mojito mint and stuff for the guys because – I saw the mojito mint. And I, yeah. That was the thing. That was like, like I love lavender, but also the mojito mint did jump yeah. out of me. Yeah, so our process is that we just opened to the public at the end of last season, and we had several hundred visitors, so that was kind of a beta test. So we'll be opening this season, and if we do it right with our sunflower plants, and uh, we're going to have lots of opportunities for selfies, that's what they want. I didn't tell you about this one, Dave, uh, another idea of Diane's and Amy's is, you know that second wood that we went through that's cleared out? Yeah. The, We're going to hang empty picture frames. So you put your face. Oh, so you put your face. So it's, a, so, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a picture frame wood. Beautiful. I think, which I think is a cool idea. There's something idyllic about, uh, as we were walking through, and actually, it's a complete sidebar question. What's the difference between normal mint and mojito mint? Like, It's got a different taste. The mojito mint's got a... Um, Kind of almost a bit of a chocolate taste to it, but we got four kinds of mint. We got peppermint, spearmint, yep, margarita mint, and mojito mint. Wait, 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 wait. We got margarita mint now. Like, yeah, yeah. Well, you have to Google how to make a a mint margarita, but wait, you no, can imagine. No, 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 no. You're gonna have to make me a margarita. At a, <laughs> no. I got some rum, um, and I've got some mojito mint that's dried. I'll make you a margarita right after this. Well, we can't do it right now because annoyingly, or a mojito, I should say. Right, annoyingly, we are. You know, we're not in dry July anymore, but because no. it, it's not July, <laughs> dry no. January. But uh, neither was neither was drink. So no, I know. Uh, so that like, but I, I had no idea these things, these different varieties of mint existed. What do you take out of doing? Like, I can well imagine you 
with your feet buried up to the knees in soil being quite happy, Steve. Like you've just yeah. got that sort of earthy yeah. chill. You, you know what you remind me of? You actually do remind me of an ant, you know, and I don't know if this <laughs> yeah, is coming across, because you speak slowly. You're yeah, very, yeah. you're very purposeful when I ask you a question, whether it's, you know, and I, I, I don't know if it's coming across or, yeah. as we're talking here, but whenever I ask you a question, <laughs> there's always a long pause and I expect you to maybe go away and get into a hoot uh, as a, Hmm. Mm, you know, Master Nickel, Greybeard or Greenbeard. What was his name? It was Greenbeard or Greenface? What's his name? And you, you sort of walk in a in a way, and you're you're a big guy, Treebeard, 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 right? So you're a big guy and sort of lumbering through the forest there, and and very considered and and deeply thought of. I just when I look at what you're doing here, it looks like it's just such a good fit for you to be working the land and tilling it. But it also sounds like it's quite hard work. So so right now you're working as a veterinarian, running a full-time farm, a horse, like a stable. Um, yeah. Now we don't do any physical work in that stable. Right, right. Pure ownership. However, it's pure ownership, but there's still responsibilities for sure. Right, right. It's not like you've got fewer things to do. Yeah, you know, you, no. you're very busy. Like, your weeks are long, right? How many hours a week do you work the far? I'm going to. Well, take- you know what I'm going to do? Uh, and uh, I'm going to be very, very frank again. Let's say how many weeks, hours a week does Diane work? Okay. Right. So, Diane and I are both part time clinicians. Yeah. It's very interesting for us to not own clinics and work. Right. But in, we, in a good but- way or in a. Most of, most of the time it it's good. No, most of the time it's good because staff always come to you. People know that you know stuff. In some ways it's relieving to know that you might be employable again because I think I've reached the point where I might be unemployable. <laughs> but but I'll, I'll, so let me say that Diane works between 25 and 30 hours a week as a clinician. And then in the summer and the fall when you can be on the land, she tends to st- to sleep in in the mornings, but she'll start from mid-morning and go till dark, Saturdays right. and Sundays. And we're quite northerly here. What times get dark in the evening? Oh, in, in, the, the, su- in the summer, it's the same as Scotland. Like 11, not, 11 yeah, p.m.? Not 11, but uh, 9.30, 10, yeah. and then uh, on average 8 o'clock until you get into the fall. Right. And then all the other waking hours of the other work, week she's doing and then you've seen all these dried herbs and flowers like she's drying and stripping and doing things amazing in front of in front of the television so they talk about this thing called freedom 55 back in the 80s they they taught uh, us young people in in the 20s freedom 55 that you would work until age 55 and you'd (laughs) accumulate enough wealth that you didn't have to do anything for the rest of your life that was a bloody lie wasn't it Big lie. We're all screwed. And so, so Diane and I are both sixty, and I'm now saying we're doing that Freedom Fifty Five. You know, so Diane's working eighty hours a week sometimes. Right. I'd say I'm working fifty. Right. Part of it for me is, as you know, I wrecked my arm, so yeah. I've, I've just only been. At You've 50%. had to dial it back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, dial it back, but that that's all temporary. Right. So that's a large number of hours, and is Treebeard Steve a happier Steve? working the land in this way and really what I'm, my question is for many of us our identities are so inseparable from that of the veterinarian that we become yeah. so blinkered whereas the people one of the red threads i'm starting to see over and over again 
with guests and blunt dissection who and we all have our you know nobody gets a monopoly yeah. on bad times we all got our stuff to go through but one of the commonalities that i'm starting to recognize and this is our this is maybe the it's getting it's not far away from the 30th interview is that when people have balance or some other outlet yeah. that they're they're more able to cope and be the best version of themselves as a doctor so treebeard steve lumbering around in the fields with his toes growing into the soil seems like a more grounded steve well i'm going to explain a couple things to you and i'm going to use two or three examples right and it's part of the answer right it's on lachlan botanicals facebook but there's a picture of one of the girls one of the technicians i work with she brought her little niece who was three years old and this very very photogenic little girl in a floral dress and a floral bonnet with this huge bucket of flowers beaming ear to ear. It's all Instagram, and I just love this picture. And the reason I love it, her name is Josie, is Josie was so happy. What you can't see in this picture, Dave, is that this was one of the hottest days of the year. Like if you touched Josie, she was soaked to the bone. If you took her little if you took her little sunbonnet off, she did, her, she did her hair was dripping. And I mean, the reason I got the picture is because I was there. I mean, I was dripping too. It was, you know, it was 36 degrees and humid. Yeah. So I want you to picture this. Jo- there it is. I got the picture right up now. So I want you to picture Josie. Now, fast forward to another scene. Remember how I said about how much I like people and make them comfortable? Yeah. There was an Indian family that came. There were lots of Indian families because they live close. But there was uh, uh, the mother or the grandmother, uh, older woman, you know, full gray hair and dressed in a sari and so on. And uh, so I just started chit-chatting with her. And I just had a grand time. And we ended up at, uh, we've got uh, some a plant that uh, is licorice flavored called anise hyssop. And the flowers are so tasty and sweet. You just eat them and it's like eating sweet licorice. And so my memory is me and this 75-year-old Indian grandmother just talking about everything under the sun for probably 20 minutes, just eating these licorice plants. And then the other thing is we'll often have I think it's, I'm just going to say it, you know, the people who come from big, busy cities like New York and Toronto and so on, they're uptight. They just, it's not their fault. They just are. And you can literally see the people come here and they're so wound up and they're very reserved. And what's that word when you're protecting yourself? You're like holding back. You're putting up barriers. Yeah, I can't, but there's a word for it. It doesn't matter. And I'm just myself. And I walk along with my talk to them and I start pointing out things and I'm always snipping off stuff and showing them what it smells like and giving it to them. And you can see these people lighten up. Yeah. Like totally lighten up. They've put up their guard was what I wanted to say. So their guard is completely down. Yeah. I always take the men. There's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, 30 year old men that are here with their girlfriends and they got kind of walking with their arms crossed and like, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> and I ripped them some mojito mint and, and, and 
give them a quick verbal on how to make a mojito when they get home. And to see these people lighten up and be happy. We're all in this thing together, Dave. You know this. What better thing could you do than to make somebody else happy? So that's what I like. And does it infuse into your life as a veterinarian? Like here you are, 60, you've had your own hospitals, you're working for somebody else now. What's giving you joy in the practice at this point in time? Because it's clear, again, for you, it's like helping people is the recurring theme. So. Yeah, no, I just I just like helping people. I mean, I, all vets do. If they don't, they should be researchers. And that's not even a nasty thing to say. It's just a fact. If you're very uncomfortable in a clinic, there's all kinds of cool other things we vets can do. But if you do like people and you love helping people, you'll thrive in a clinic if you use your mind the right way. There's certain skills that seem not to be, I don't know if they were ever taught in veterinary college. and Maybe it's different here in Canada, but it, it doesn't seem like, let me interject. I know where you're going with this. At the Ontario, I, I coached this program for uh, help coach it. Uh, it's called the Art of Veterinary Medicine, and uh, there's this thing that they use at the Ontario Vet College called the Calgary Cambridge Guide. You know it? Yeah. Yeah. The consulting so, model. Yeah, yeah. So they were using that. They had the the live actors and all that sort of thing. Yeah. So that's as close as they ever got. But I can remember and that's mid- closer than most. I can remember many times I'd be coaching these folks, almost always girls now, nothing wrong with that either, but most times, so you're coaching these girls, sometimes you can see they're almost about to cry or whatever, and stop, and then I'll basically teach them something about human relations 101. Simple things like, what do you think this person wants out of this relationship? And you just get them thinking, well... They want their dog to get better. Yes. So they might be difficult, but why do you think that is? Because they're worried about their dog. So I would teach them human. I try to get them to reason out how people behave the way they do, and I give them human relations 101, and I know damn well no one had ever taught it to them before, ever. I think that's one of the things, you know, having – you know, observed you coaching and been coached by you, you're very good at using, learning what make people tick and taking parallel situations where people are having driving happiness and helping them apply things that they've learned or states of mind they've learned in other moments into their veterinary moment in order to build their happiness or enjoyment of that moment. Well, like, where did you learn that? And perhaps where are some examples? You know, sport? you know, I think what I've done is I've hybridized my life's learning into a method that would be unique to Steve Noonan, but certainly being practiced similarly. Like, here's a line for you. Imagine every single person who comes into the clinic in front of you as your dearest relative. So, and you just apply the gender. If it's an older woman, you know, your dearest auntie. And you want to do everything you can for this person because they're dear to you. It just totally changes yeah. how you perceive them. And what, what will happen is, again, as long as they're not in that small fragment of psychopaths, they will respond. And by the end of it, they'll think you're pretty pretty good vet that was almost exactly just as you spoke there 
I was reminded of my family doctor, who's one of my, not maybe one of my first veterinary heroes, but certainly inspired me to want to be working with people. Because whenever you'd show up to the practice, this guy would make you feel, yeah, not just welcome, but he'd look totally, he would be delighted to see, even though you felt yeah. like death, looked like, you yeah. know, you know yeah, yeah, yeah. people when they get sick just, they just let all personal standards yeah. go and like, you know, wash. No, no, I, like no he, I get it. Right. He never looked on that. In fact, the absolute opposite. Yeah. He always beamed with joy. And I never once saw him not, it, it wasn't just me. Yeah. It was everyone. And how much no, that's that a gift. loved. You know, you, you just reminded me now of something that I want to share is um, my doctor when I was in Nova Scotia, John McDonald. John McDonald, he smiled all the time. He also taught at Dalhousie School of Medicine, so he was a good doctor. Do you say Dalhousie here? Yeah. Not Dalhousie? Dalhousie. Yeah. Dalhousie. So he, he was a, a teacher, and because I was a vet, he respected me. Like, like He became my doctor when I was 24, right? At this point, he's yeah. 50. Yeah. And he respected me. Essentially, I was a boy. Yeah. And he explained every single thing that he did. And he'd have the books ready to show me things. Yeah. And so here's an example of trust in your doctor. I remember this. I thought I was going to have a heart attack when I was building that hospital. I thought for sure I was. What, what made, was there? Oh, because I was having pain in my chest and pain with every breath. Yeah. I went and saw John McDonald uh, and I, like my nerves were shot. I thought this is it. You know, here I am. I've worked so hard now, 45 years old. I'll be dead. Yeah. Did it all for nothing. Anyway, went to see John McDonald, took my blood pressure, listened to my heart. He said, you silly ass. He said, you're hyperventilating. You're so nervous. He's, I'm going to just put you on a mild sedative to, to slow down your breathing. Yeah. I was instantly cured. My chest pains were gone within an hour. Good doctor. Somebody you trust, somebody who's kind. Right. And suddenly just can make fear yeah. and anxiety evaporate. Yeah. It's good to have good friends, isn't it? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to move into rapid fire questions now. So I haven't said, I, right. I, I always feel like maybe I should send these things out in advance and I always yeah. forget. Or if I do send them out, then they get too contrived. So first question, if you were to give a TED Talk, what would the title of your TED Talk be? Why it's important to make other people comfortable. And you're not talking about comfortable in the Birkenstocks and no, I'm talking about way. I'm talking about making it comfortable in the Indian grandmother smiling and and eating licorice with me. Okay, what's the coolest thing you've bought in the last six months, and how has it helped you? Like, why is it cool? The electronic tuner for my ukulele. Well, that is cool, twenty bucks. Actually. Run by a little watch battery. It's, it's brilliant. Can you tune that up in a noisy environment? Like if you were yep. backstage at concert, yeah, you could doing, retune a guitar. It's doing the vibration thing, yeah. It, yeah. Like it's it's feeling the vibrations through the neck of it rather than the noise through the air. Is that right? Yeah. That is very cool. All yeah. right. I might need to get a serial number or a brand name for that. Uh, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, you can jump in a time machine back to the day you're graduating out of veterinary school um and you went to school in guelph is that right correct Ontario yeah veterinary college yeah. so you're back at the steps of your college and the sun's blazing down and you you're 
about to throw your mortar board in the air. Yeah. And Steve Noonan from the future can appear in a quiet moment, reflective moment. What piece of advice would you give yourself and why? Just be yourself. Uh, I think we talked all about it previously in this program, but, but I worked so bloody hard to get people to like me. I think they would have right from the get-go. What was the best piece of advice you ever received? I think the best piece of advice for sure was when my boss gave me advice and made me take the Dale Carnegie course. But he was giving me some advice. He he, he was telling me without telling me that I was too cocky, a, a, a young know-it-all. And because I was in Atlantic Canada, there's regionalities in all countries. I don't know what it's like in, in uh, the fact is, you know, you know, a smooth talking Londoner goes to a, uh, to Newcastle and he, he has to watch how he talks. Right. It's right. Just, right. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. So Ontarians are perceived in Atlantic Canada as, uh, arseholes. <laughs> and so I couldn't possibly perceive that because I thought everyone would love me, but, uh, and to, uh, to that behavior to you was normal. It, yeah. Right. Correct. Cause that's where you're from. Correct. So I think I was seen as too. Ebulent, ebullient is—is is that the word? Ebullient, ebullient. Yeah, I was see, I was too ebullient, I think. And anyway, how did you so, perceive them? Oh, that they're great. They're great. Well, yeah. I, I like everybody. Yeah, that's that's a gift that I—it's a gift and a curse, but mainly a gift. I like it. But uh, that taking that course for sure, best advice. What was the worst piece of advice that you've ever received? Uh, to open up that downtown hospital, the crappy one in the lower income place. Yeah, I just agonized over that for five years and then sold it and either broke even or lost money. So that was my worst business advice for sure. You are, you're very good at, actually what you're, I think one of the things you're best at, Steve, is the gift of supportive but necessary encouragement without judgment, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, you can be kind, but you can say what's necessary. Uh, so as a very tenuous link to the next question, what was the best gift that you, and again, you can choose whether it's the best gift you've ever given uh, or, or the best gift you ever received and why was it the best gift? And obviously, um, you know, you, you don't have to say that amazing yeah. cup that I just brought you from, from, yeah. from England. That was the damn nice cup. Um, you know, I've, I've received so many nice gifts, um, that were unexpected. Um, some of the nicest gifts that we got, these are physical things. Um, my wife's father, uh, gave us things when we moved to Atlantic Canada. You know that old saying about giving your children wings? Yeah. Uh, you know, so that you can welcome them back or whatever. And God bless him. He's still he's in his late 80s and he's still doing stuff for us. But w when we left to go to Atlantic Canada before we started working, we didn't have two cents to rub. And then one of the nicest things he did is he put tires on my old car. To, oh, yeah. to drive out east, probably because he didn't want his daughter killed. But still, <laughs> you know, he was he was putting his faith in this twenty four year old kid with torn jeans to take care of his daughter, and that was a wonderful gift. Set of tires. 
the satires, especially in the snow and ice you guys get yeah. here. What would you like to be remembered for the most? For being a good guy. For the longest time, I wanted to be remembered as, as being a really smart, clever guy, you know, who did all these wonderful things for the profession. But if I could be remembered as a guy who helped anybody who asked, uh, and I mean uh, helped them uh, with advice, counseling, so on, whether they were in the profession or outside the profession, that would be plenty for me. Plenty. Now, if you, this is a big question. You're going to have to have a, a go at chunking it down. It doesn't matter. You've lived a rich, varied, and really interesting life. What are the keys to living a happy life? Choose your love carefully. Eat well. Exercise. Sleep. Sleep is massive. You have to learn to sleep properly. Um, spend, spend below your means. And um, take extra special good care of like all your loved ones around you. Like you, you never know when they when they can be gone. That's it. All right. Yeah. Last question then. Uh, if you could send, I know you you are more of an Instagram person, yeah. than a, a Twitter person. So if you could send one Instagram image and or message to the world and everybody could get on their phone instantaneously, what would it be? And I say be like Oscar. <laughs> and Oscar Oscar right now is just having the best time rolling around on the yeah. right in front of a roaring fire, looking very happy with life. Yeah. Be like Oscar. A picture yeah. of Oscar on his back. Yeah, be like Oscar. No, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm, you know, Dave, I'm trying to, I'm trying to turn 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 it into, uh, you know, 140 characters or less. But my, like well, you my know, Twitter doubled that up to 280. Yeah, I heard that so recently. You can, you can go. You can I go do have a Twitter it. account. But I can't be bothered doing anything with it yet. My my biggest thing, and I truly believe this, is if if we could make an effort to like every single person we meet and to try to make them feel good. Just, just simply, if, if we could try to do that, then, then I think we could have, um, we could have a, a ripple effect. Be like Oscar. Be like Oscar. I think we just found your new hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> Lachlan Botanicals new hashtag, hashtag be like Oscar yeah. Oscar is beautiful what do you got to say about that Oscar? see if you can get him to do the teeth you, you gotta speak high pitch to it for hey Oscar <laughs> <laughs> Oscar has the most fabulously yeah. you know, man. happy disposition yeah. I have to say well Stephen Una, thank you very much for inviting me out to your farm and giving me the tour and for letting me indulging me as we do snow angels in in your fields um and for just letting me 
be a part of your life for the last 24 hours but moreover being a good friend for the last few years and thank you for all the support that you know and the the, the I think the, the joy and the support that you give to the people you meet out there in the profession um I think we all are richer for that input oh thanks Dave it was, no. it was an honor thanks if people would like to follow, get to know, learn more about Steve Noonan, in particular Lachlan Botanicals, um, and perchance even if you're in the, 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 the Canada area, North America, I'm pretty sure you'll ship stuff to, to people. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Where do they Absolutely. Ch- where do they check out? They've got to check you out on because you, you have a yeah. you have a very nice Instagram feed, um, which uh, and and check it out because there's some really cool pictures up on there so um if people are going to find you on that um it's lachlan botanicals is that right yeah lachlan botanicals on instagram facebook yep and just the simple straight steve noonan yep on um in facebook yep um and uh, of course those of you who are vet xers uh, uh thrivers you certainly can uh contact me inside the the vedex community all right steve thank you very much for being on blunt dissection cheers so there you have it folks just me again before you jump off super super important please show some love to steve did you enjoy the episode give him some feedback give him some love Follow Lachlan Botanicals on Instagram. I know he would appreciate it and he'd appreciate hearing from you. And if you're enjoying Blunt Dissection, please don't forget to leave us a recommendation on iTunes or shout us out to your friends. Tell other people what you've heard, where you heard it, and why you like it. And don't forget, you can buy a t-shirt on my website, drdavenickel.com and support the show. So until next time, be safe, be well, and be happy. This is Dr. Dave, out.